Welcome to Element if you are new. It's a meet and greet after. You can go say hi to that. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the front side, you're going to get the verses we're going to go through. You get a place to write some notes. You get four questions, same questions every week to reflect on the passages. On the back, you're going to get a little recap of what we talk about. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion. We come up by GPS in your smart device and you get the sermon notes, the verses, the questions, the announcements, all that goes with today's message, except for me saying get off your butt and come and help. That's not in there, but just remember I said it. My name is Aaron. My name is Mike Harmon. No, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is 1 Samuel 25, verses 32 and 33, and it says this, And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be those who trust you, that we are not those who work salvation or our own victories with our own hands, but we are those who trust you to understand that you have already won the victory. And you have given us grace. You have called us to yourself. And so I ask that you would teach us how to live in the wisdom that you provide and how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. We are doing this series called Not So Little Women. I've had a couple people go, why? And I'm always like, why not? We should, we should talk about this. We do this because I think most of the times the stories you hear about people in the Bible are the men. You know, like Jonah going to, going to Nineveh, Nehemiah building the temple, Ezra being the priest in there. You got the disciples. You have all these stories about what these guys do. And I thought it's really good to look at stories specifically of some of the women. Now, I've told you some of these stories are good stories. Some are bad stories. But they're all there for a reason for us to learn. And today's message I thought was going to be the easiest one for me to put together and write and give to you. I thought it was going to pop right out of me, and it didn't. I actually went off and I wrote another message in the series and came back to this one, and I just couldn't get it. So I went away and wrote another one for this series and then came back to this one. And I'm like, oh, like three or four times I did that. So what I'm saying is, if it sounds disjointed, it's all you. It's not me. No, I'm hoping it flows. I think I landed in, in a pretty good spot, but I really did keep coming back and forth. I thought it was going to be easy, but it wasn't. Today, we're going to talk about this woman named Abigail. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, that is on page 159 if you're going to use one of the Bibles here at Element. So who was Abigail? Well, we have to understand in all of these stories, we usually talk about men and women that surround the people that we're talking about because none of us live in a vacuum. Right? All of our lives are connected to other people. And so Abigail's story is a longer story that involves a guy named David, who eventually becomes King David, and involves her husband, this guy named Nabal. So when this whole story kind of starts, David is on the run from King Saul. King Saul wants to kill David because David had been anointed to be the next king of Israel. Saul is the current king. He doesn't like that. He's jealous. He wants to get rid of David. And so Saul catches up with David near this wilderness of In Gedi. And Gedi is like a desert oasis. It's really kind of nice. And so David, though, ends up being in this position where he could take Saul's life. 
but instead he spares King Saul. Now, Saul was a bad king, but in this moment where David spares him, Saul gets a moment of clarity. He acknowledges, yes, what Samuel said is correct. You are going to be the next king, and he decides to go home to Gibeah. Now, that doesn't mean that David and Saul's conflict is over. It just means that for a moment, Saul had a little bit of guilt about how he was fighting God's plan and he decided to go home. But David still stays in that desert place of En Gedi. Then the prophet who anointed David and Saul dies. So 1 Samuel 25 verse 1. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So as soon as Samuel dies, all of a sudden David gets up and says, I'm going to go to the wilderness of Paran. Paran is much further south. It's kind of a trek to get there. And this is probably because now that Samuel is gone, any restraining force on Saul is taken away. And so Saul is just going to go after David again. He knows where David is, so David decides to move on. So as David goes south, he runs across this guy named Nabal. On other occasions, David had helped out Nabal. David, true to his character, protects this guy's flocks during shearing season, which is a great thing because that's when all these hoodlums would show up and want to steal your stuff because it's a great time to steal people's livestock. But David protects this guy. So as he goes south, he sends some men, hey, we're passing Nabal's place. Go over, ask him for some provisions for us as we head south. The journey is long and hard. So this is where you kind of see Abigail and Nabal. 1 Samuel 25, verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, and beautiful may not be referring to her looks. It could be referring most likely to her character. Discerning and beautiful, and now you contrast that, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Now, this doesn't mean in the Bible all men are harsh and badly behaved and all women are discerning and beautiful. You will see lots of women who are harsh and badly behaved and lots of men who are discerning and beautiful. It's equal opportunity. Though here, Abigail, Abigail is discerning and beautiful. David's men asked Nabal for help. First uh, Samuel 25, verse 8. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. Nabal's response Verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Obviously he knows who he is because he knows whose son he is. There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters, meaning, hey, Saul's the king, you're not, stop breaking away from him. Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Now, this is like saying, I don't care if you help me when no one would. Saul is the king, not you. I am loyal to Saul. Bible scholars will tell you that it is customary during shearing time for wealthy landowners to give food to people who are around them. It's a way to say, God has been good to me. I'm going to be generous and give to you. So David's request, especially in view of taking care of Nabal in these places where he's protecting his flocks, is totally appropriate, completely appropriate. Nabal's response is selfish and it is political. You ever known somebody to do something selfish because of a political thing or make a dumb decision because of politics or conspiracy theories? 
It's the 2020s. That's, that's how we live our lives every day, both sides of the aisle. Like I told you last week, I made that dumb joke about COVID and I split the room. Half of you were like, yeah, vaccine. And there's kill the vaccine. It's like, whoa, I just made a joke, man. Calm down. We get upset. We judge. We think the other guy is wrong, trying to take everything that we own. Nabal says, we have a rightfully elected president. I mean, a rightfully appointed king. How dare you go against them? You're in rebellion. You're going to get nothing from me because I don't want to give it to you because I see you as the other. You know, you've been nothing but kind to me, but it doesn't matter. Kind of like today when people love you and you agree with them, but if you disagree with them about one little thing, all of a sudden they want you canceled. Hashtag Nabal. That'll be the new hashtag right there. So David, David's men come and they tell him, this is what happened. This is what Nabal said. And all of a sudden, David's like, what? He said that? I'll cancel him permanently. That's what he says. Sounds like our world today. 1 Samuel 25, verse 13. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And this is kind of written funny in the Hebrew because it says, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. It's like, that's what he said. And about 400, you don't think it's funny. I do. Uh, And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Now, there are people who will say what David did here is totally correct and righteous. It's not. It's not. There's a lot of people who look at the Bible and try and say that all the crazy things that people did, we're going to explain those away because these are our heroes. This is written to show us that everybody, even David, a man after God's own heart, can stumble and fall and do the wrong thing. David's retaliation is wrong. He is reacting just like Nabal. He's not offering grace. And if you read previous chapters, this almost looks out of character for David because even you look at Saul, he offers so much grace to Saul by sparing his life. Now, maybe David knew Saul was an enemy and he wants Saul to begin to see him as an ally. But Nabal, David only expects a friendly relationship. He protected him. He expects this guy to be like, yeah, let me help you. Being stabbed in the back by a friend hurts more than just about anything else. Would you agree? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Gordon Keaty writes this. It is nasty surprises that always tend to raise the hackles and give occasion for the temptation to overreact. We are vulnerable at such moments. Do not let one man's folly be the cause of your own folly. Such good words. All the dudes are out of control. Nabal is telling everyone off. David's like, strap on your swords. Let's go kill this guy. Who steps forward as a pitcher of wisdom? Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. What happens is one of these workers in Nabal's house, they hear what Nabal says to David's men. He's like, "Uh uh-oh. And he runs over and he tells Abigail, David has protected us in the past. This is what Nabal just said to David. And Abigail, the one person thinking clearly with wisdom, steps into this scene. So what happened? Go to verse 18 of chapter 25. That Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins. I hope you like raisins. And 200 cakes of figs. I hope you like figs. And laid them on donkeys. So Abigail is going to go out to meet David because everyone knows you cannot speak sense to Nabal. He is out of control. Do you know anybody like that in your life? No matter what happens, they don't listen. They go with their own gut reaction. If you don't... 
It's probably you. You're welcome. Uh, Abigail springs into action. She knows what to do. She takes these provisions. Probably not enough to feed 600 people, but it's enough to show goodwill. She sends them on ahead of her to intercept David because she knows what's coming. And so David's like, let's get that guy. Food? I'm hungry. I could eat. And they go over and they... Started having a little meal. It's kind of nice. First Samuel 25, 19 says she did not tell her husband what she was doing. One commentator says this, Abigail looks like the competent wife who had been called upon before to rectify some of her husband's pigheadedness. Men like that rarely know how much they owe to the faithfulness of their wives. There are other people who say, she shouldn't have done that, though, because she's not being an Old Testament submissive wife. The same guy says, yeah, biblical submissiveness is not meant to lead to suicide, so she's doing the right thing. Abigail takes her donkey. She goes under the cover of this mountain. She meets David and his men, but she has a lot of courage because she, before she does, she hears David talking and saying all this crazy stuff, how he's going to destroy Nabal's household. 1 Samuel 25, verse 21. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Meaning, one who belonged to him alive. I'm going to take them all out. David's so mad, talks about himself in the third person, and he's obviously not speaking or thinking clearly because he's going to do something that would ruin his future. It would disgrace his God. If David killed Nabal and his household, David would have been no better than the current king, Saul. People would have difficulty submitting to David's leadership, knowing that his anger was irrational. And if they served him, it would only be out of fear. And as I said, there are some people who look at this text and they try and find all these ways to make what David did not look so bad. They said, oh no, David was really a good guy. Other people will look at this text and they will say, no, David was always a horrible person. He's like the godfather. You want me to protect your sheep? You've got to give me some sheep when I come by later. You know, and, but that's not what's happening either. This is written to show that Nothing is slanted to show that humanity really has anything of itself that is not grace that God has given us. You see David just running off to this crazy stuff, seeing Nabal doing these, these crazy things. The point of the biblical narrative is we are all terrible and God is good and continues to be good. Even Abigail being wise and saving her household, much of that is also done from a selfish motive. Why? Because as bad as her husband is, if Nabal is gone, she will be destitute. Women could not own property in this culture, and if he was gone, she'd be destitute. I mean, I think she shows great courage and wisdom and strength, but there's a little bit of, I have to protect myself in this. So this is what she says to David. She's, I mean, lays it on pretty thick here. Okay, so she gets to David, 1 Samuel 25, verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, <coughs> my husband, uh, for his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. Nabal means fool or foolish or folly, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, that's David, as the Lord lives, that's God Almighty, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. 
And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. So again, a lot of it laid on there, really, really thick. Oh, you're great. You're wonderful. Don't kill me. Oh, you're great. Oh, don't shoot me. Don't come on. All, the, all that stuff. There's a lot here. But what you see is Abigail makes five main uh, things in her appeal here. Number one, she takes upon herself her husband's guilt. She said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Even though she had nothing to do with the encounter between David's men and Nabal, she's willing to take upon herself her husband's guilt. And I'll talk about that more in just a moment. So hold your questions. Second, uh, she confesses her husband's folly. Abigail knew her husband did not love or respect God. And it leads to all of this conflict, how it all starts. Third thing is she asked for forgiveness, which is what Nabal should have done, but Nabal wasn't going to do that. And so she makes restitution by providing David with these various foods. Fourth, she affirms David's future kingdom. She says, I believe the prophet Samuel. I believe what he has said. I believe that you will be the next king of Israel, that God is raising you up for this purpose. But fifth, and this is interesting, she warns David of the consequences if he did carry out this plan. She said, you will have blood guilt. You will have this. And then she goes on, verse 30. And when, my, and when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Now, when you read salvation in the Old Testament, this has the idea of, of a victory, that David had his pride hurt, and he was going to go restore his own pride. He's going to work salvation himself, and that's not how salvation works. Abigail is brilliant. She stops David from carrying out his attack, and what you see is her appeal is a model to every one of us and how to deal with others if we have hurt or offended others, or maybe we have friends who have been hurt or offended by people around them. We should, in our lives, learn to admit guilt, confess folly, ask for forgiveness, affirm the future possibilities of what a restored relationship can look like, and warn of regrets if sinful actions are carried out. And again, we'll come back to this. What is David's response? 1 Samuel 25, verse 32. And David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord. Who? Blessed be the Lord. So Abigail does this. It helps David get some perspective. And who does David give thanks to? God. God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And then he turns to her, and blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. So God uses Abigail to restrain David to stop injustice. God uses that servant who overheard the conversation to go talk to Abigail. But in the end, it is God in his providential mercy that moved all of these things together to show us Abigail, teach David a lesson, and help us all grow in grace. Blessed be the Lord. God is the one who brought these things about. Only God can establish his kingdom in his way, in his time. Left to himself, David would have blown it, just like Nabal blew it, just like King Saul blew it. The only one in the course of history who hasn't blown it is Jesus. Yeah, you're Jesus. Je yes, it's Jesus. That's the answer. That's when you say it. What happens after this is Abigail's going to go back home. Uh, Nabal is having a sheep shearing party. He's pretty drunk, so she waits till the next morning to tell him what she did. I did this thing, and I was able to save us. David didn't come and kill you. You're welcome. And he gets so angry that he has a stroke or a heart attack. The text tells you that he seizes up like a stone. <clears throat> okay? And then he dies after 10 days. 
When David hears about this, he sent one of his men to bring Abigail to him as a wife. And you think, well, that's really weird. You got to think culturally in what's happening here. This woman just stopped David from doing something that would have destroyed the rest of his life. He sees her discernment and her beauty and her character. And in a sense, he redeems her by saying, I will not leave you destitute. I know this thing happened. I will take care of you. It's kind of beautiful, but it's a whole other sermon. And it's not, I'm not talking about David, I'm talking about Abigail. Okay, so what do we learn from Abigail? What do we learn? I think that we learned something that we talked about two years ago when we went through the book of James. You have wisdom from below and wisdom from above. That's what you see. James 3.17 says this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. See, James is contrasting the way that we typically think about wisdom. We think about wisdom like David. I'm going to get salvation myself. I'm going to get back. I will get my pride. I will show you how good I am. That is wisdom from below. Wisdom from above centers on God's call over us to follow him. Nabal exercises wisdom from below. He is angry, thinks everybody just wants his stuff. He's not generous. He thinks he owns everything because of how hard he's worked for his things. I deserve it all. David exercises wisdom from below. I'm going to get even. I'll go get that guy. This is why wisdom from above is the opposite of all of that. And I'm not going to spend as much time as I did in James talking about this, but I do want to briefly hit these. First off, it says it's pure. Now, pure is the sense of it's undefiled, meaning it's not self-centered. It's not about us. How do we become undefiled? Well, through Christ. That's how. The gospel. We have been cleansed by Christ's blood and we trust in him. So true wisdom is going to start with hearts that aren't turned towards ourselves, where we're not trying to you know, make salvation on our own. We want to be devoted to God for God himself and what he has done. Abigail trusted what God's prophet have said. She could have been totally bitter about her marriage to Nabal, which was most likely arranged. But it looks like she keeps her eyes open for what God is going to do. False wisdom will say, God isn't good. He has stuck me in this situation. Why am I here? When many times we're in those situations because of our own decisions. But we look at this and say, God's supposed to be all about me. False wisdom says, there's not a way to live my life. There are just preferences. And everybody has their own preference, and it's up to you to find out what's best for you. No. Wisdom from above says, God, you have redeemed. You have saved me. I will live my life focused on you, not upon myself. False wisdom is not pure because it's rooted in self. The second thing it says is it's peaceable. Now, some translations will actually say peace-loving because that's what it means. We love peace. It does not mean you run from conflict. Okay, the, Abigail steps into the middle of this conflict. She puts herself in harm's way to bring peace. I told you this story back in the book of James about this couple who'd been married 50 years. And someone asked the husband, what's the secret to your longevity? And so the husband says, well, when my wife and I got married, we made this choice. When she was angry and bothered, she would just get it off her chest and tell me all about it. And when I was angry, I was supposed to go for a long walk. He goes, so... He goes, so I could really say that the you know, secret of our happy marriage is that I have lived a largely outdoor life. <laughs> there are times to go take a walk. There really are. But there are times when we also engage. It is both. Wisdom is both. For us, we want peace because Ephesians 2.14, Jesus is our peace. That's where our peace starts. And so we are able to go out and talk about peace. That doesn't mean we don't make waves that the honor of God or the truth of God or the Bible is at stake, but we're not just out to cause trouble or be part of chaos like Nabal. Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. 
So it is pure, it is peaceable, and then it is gentle. And gentle is a hard word for us to understand because it really means considerate. It has been said that there is no word in English or even Latin that can properly translate this word. What it does, it describes a person who, though you are wronged, you don't lash out. Like, you have David, right? He's going to kill everyone because his pride was wounded by this guy, Nabal. It was only Nabal's fault, too, but he's going to get take out everyone. Abigail did not lash out. So the person with this quality makes allowances for the weaknesses and the ignorance of others without looking down on other people for their weakness or their ignorance. That means it takes the kindest perspective whenever possible. And that looks like Abigail. And then it says, open to reason. Does that not sound like Abigail? Open to re- because of Abigail's wisdom, David himself became open to reason. Let me read you his response out of the NIV in 1 Samuel 25, verses 32 and 33. It says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed by your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Because Abigail came reasonable, David became open to reason. We are on the wrong path of wisdom if we are never willing to change our minds. In our marriages, in our workplaces, in our friendships, we must be open to reason. So pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and then full of mercy and good fruit. Those things go hand in hand because wisdom doesn't doesn't just take place in our hearts or in our brains. It moves out into our hands, into what we do. If we are not full of mercy, our lives will most likely not be full of good fruit. Our faith is going to be hollow. Abigail didn't just think about what she should do. She went and then she did it. And then it says impartial. The word impartial simply means steady, like you're not tossed around by everything that comes at you when you read your social media posts and like this new source of this and this new source of this and just jumping around. No, you're steady. You're steady. Wisdom from above operates with a consistent view that starts with God's truth is the truth. That's the truth. That's where we start. And in Abigail, this is one of the reasons I think why she went to David the way that she did. She knew what to do and followed through in that. And so I think that as people who want to love and serve God, we should be those who are impartial, hold a steady view of the truth. And then lastly, sincere. Now, it's interesting because sincere for us, we would translate that more as without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy actually wasn't a word in the Hebrew world. It came about by the Greeks and plays. And how we understand the word hypocrisy is actually given to us by Jesus. And so this is before Jesus, so this word sincere. But it means without hypocrisy. True wisdom teaches us that God loves us. And we don't have to pretend to be anything else than who he made us to be. We can trust him. We can live in his grace. We can be who we are. Abigail goes before David with no feigned sincerity, no pretense. She was who she was in openness. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Wisdom from above, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. And guys, I got to tell you, none of us, none of us match and live all that up. But I think when we trust Christ first in our lives, we start to move forward to living those things in wisdom. And I want to bring this together by pointing out that Abigail, as a woman, really is a picture of Jesus for us and what he came to do on our behalf because all the scriptures ultimately point to him. So how does this point to Christ? Let me go back to the things I was saying earlier. First, Abigail took her husband's guilt upon herself. She said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She wasn't the one who did the actions, but she went to pay for them. Who does that sound like? 
Jesus. Yes, it does. Jesus takes our guilt on himself, though he is innocent. He pays for our sins on the cross, what separates us from God and from one another. He takes our guilt and he gives us his righteousness. Secondly, she confesses her husband's folly. God points out our folly for us. Do we have the strength to listen to him when his spirit comes and points it out in our lives? Will we realize that we cannot save ourselves, that salvation is not in our own hands? Because Jesus is honest about our foolishness and sin, even when we try to deny it. The third thing is she asks for forgiveness and makes restitution. Jesus, hanging on the cross, says, Father, forgive them. That is not what I would have said in that moment. I would have said, get me off of here and smite them all. That's what I would have said. But I'm not Jesus. And what Jesus does is he makes restitution on our behalf through his shed blood. Fourth, she affirmed David's future kingdom. Abigail trusted what the prophet had said. Do you know that Samuel and every other prophet in the Old Testament, including David himself in the Psalms, point towards the coming of Christ? When Jesus comes, he is also called the son of David. That's a title that means that he will rule and reign forever as our gracious king. And it means for us, he's coming again. We trust him. And then fifth, she warned David of the consequences of his sin if he did carry out his plan and anger. Do we understand that God continues to warn us of our folly for not trusting him? He continues to warn us of our nabalness in our lives. We should be those, as I said, who admit our guilt before God, confess our folly, seek God's forgiveness in Christ, affirm the promises that God has laid out, and understand that we are going to stumble and fall in sin. That is not an excuse for when we do. But so often when we sin and when we fall, we start to obsess over the places that we fell. We start to look at that and think that's our entire life. We're not meant to obsess over that. We are meant to take it to Jesus. So we live in his grace. So we're not stuck in that place where we fell. We get to get up and begin to walk with him. I think that's what you learn from Abigail's example of what it means to truly live and walk in wisdom. It is not focused upon ourselves. It's not focused upon our hurt. It's not focused upon our own pain. It is focused upon what Christ has done. And that doesn't mean that we don't have hurt. It doesn't mean that we don't have pain. But the more we focus inward, the more that is going to take over our life. And we are meant to be those who, in wisdom, focus outward into what Christ has done and what he continues to do, because that leads us into places of wisdom. Not inward-focused, outward-focused. This is one of the reasons every week we come to the place of communion. I mean, I got to tell you, if you look at Abigail and the things she did in her life, I could be like, this is what communion reminds us of, right? Jesus comes, dies in our place, forgives us of our sin, brings us back into relationship with God, makes restitution for us. And when we come to a place of communion, we bow all of our selfishness and set it to the side and realize what he has done. And it resets our entire lives and our entire perspective and focus. And this is what I want for you today. I want us to be able to come to this place of communion. We don't pass it throughout the room. During music, you gotta, you got to get up and, and do it as a response. But it's a reminder of God's great love given to us so that we can be those who begin to live in wisdom from above. That we can be sincere and live without hypocrisy because our lives are found solely based upon what he has done. And we do not have to be afraid or hide who we are because of God's great love and mercy that has been bestowed upon us. And we are now called his children. That's what we remember in communion. If you need prayer, maybe you in your life in the last week, maybe a lot of family came over for Thanksgiving and you just went, 
you know, the wrong direction and you had a whole lot of wisdom from below and you want someone to pray with you. Or maybe your whole family is full of wisdom from below and you want some wisdom from above and how to talk with them. Oh, you like that one better? Like, don't make you the bad guy, they're the bad guy? Got it. Okay. If you would like prayer, we would love to be able to pray with you through those things. Uh, right across the way in the lounge, you can go during music, you can go after services over, we'll, you know, move you away from the meet and greet, you know, maybe over to uh, the office trailer and stuff, but we'd love to be able to pray with you about that, you know, about the ways to begin to live as God calls us to, so that he is glorified and he is honored by all that we do is we live in that wisdom that he imparts to us. It's not something that we come by on our own. It is something that God's spirit gives to us as we walk humbly with him. Uh, if you'd like to give, there's offering boxes on the side walls. You can give online, but we do not pass the plate at Element because giving is always a response to what God has done. And this is why we give the way that we do. You know, no, nobody sees. It's one of those things that you give in secret. But we give because our God has first been generous with us. And I encourage you to grab those, those sermon notes. You know, take those four questions about, you know, this passage and what is God speaking to you from the message and the things that kind of happen there about how we can begin to live in this way with wisdom from above because we trust what God has first done. And I think when we begin to live that way, I mean, may we all be seen as people who are discerning and beautiful, like Abigail to our world. But it's not because we are discerning and beautiful, it's because what God has first done. And it changes into these type of, as in these type of people that live this way, that touch the world with his grace. So let's be those who reflect the goodness and the grace of Christ as the result of what the gospel has done. Let's pray. Part of this morning, I ask that you would teach us to be this people who understand the gospel in such a way in our lives that we would begin to live this wisdom from above that is not centered upon us. It is centered upon who you are and what you have done. Teach us to be those who love you and your call in our life more than we love ourselves, more than we love our own selfishness. Teach us to understand that wisdom from below when it starts to raise its ugly head in our hearts, when we want to rush forward and try and bring about salvation with my own hand and realize that that can never happen because we are those who have broken. We are the ones who have rebelled. We've run from you. And so you are the one who seek relationship with us. And you draw us to yourself in kindness and mercy, which we as your people so need. But as you give that to us, you then call us then to live out these lives in that wisdom from above as a response to what the gospel is doing in us. And so teach us to live that so the world would see who you are by our changed lives, by how we serve those around us, and how the wisdom that we show clearly reflects what you have done in us. Teach us to live, all of us, as your children and learn from all these people in the scriptures the reason why you have placed them there, to grow us, to love and serve and glorify you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. Now drop these curtains as we do. Just take a couple moments and maybe think back through the last hour, the last day, the last week, the last month, and think about the difference between what it looks like to try and work salvation with your own hand 
versus trusting God to bring you to the place that he intends for you to be. So often, we run to these places where we feel like our pride is wounded. How dare they do this? I, I make the comment all the time about every time I drive through a roundabout, I'm like, how dare they? Because, hey, aren't I more deserving than they are to drive around this roundabout? No. But I instantly start to feel this thing in my heart. And that's wisdom from below. That's working salvation with my own hand because I think I'm more important than others. And I know if, if I do it, I assume at least half of you do it too. I think we all end up there. And so I think in this, in this moment, before we take communion, ask God right now to begin to show you where you and your life are trying to work salvation with your own hand, exercising wisdom from below. And if he shows it to you, don't wallow in that and be like, yes, I'm so terrible. Understand that this is the reason that we need grace. And this is the reason why Christ came. And this is the reason why we get to have these lives of joy. Because our salvation, thank God, is not based upon what we have done. It's based upon what he has done. He has come to us in all these ways. Just like Abigail went to David. And he has made the restitution for us. And brought us into a relationship with him. So don't be afraid to ask him those questions. You know, where am I working salvation? And then come into communion, sing some song with us, and sign up to volunteer at Christmas Eve. <laughs>